0: Good morning, everyone. Quick question, Uh, anyone here normally go to first service and they're just like, nah, it's too cold. We're going to second service. Anybody? A few people, a few, not many. Uh, Because I had the, um, you know, if you went to first service, you woke up and you went outside and maybe you were running late, like, oh, church starts in three minutes. And this morning, it was one of those mornings where, oh, it's a water hose morning. You know what I'm talking about? Which is sort of the weird thing, you know? The, the science works, but intuitively it makes no sense. My windshield is frozen with ice on it. So I'm going to hose it down with cold water. <laughs> we had, if you went to first service, it was a water hose morning. I think second service, most, most of it was defrosted. Okay. All right, so we're in... A, um, Short Christmas series, looking at the Psalms, we wanna specifically look back to what they looked forward to. And in week one of this series, we looked at Psalm chapter two and how the nations conspire against God and how his response to that is he sets up his anointed one, his Messiah, the son, to sit on the throne of David. Week two, we looked at Psalm 22 and how the son would suffer and die, but ultimately be vindicated. And in week three, what I wanna do is not look at a specific Psalm, but look at a theme that appears in the Psalms and look how that theme is developed and then how it runs into a particular biblical truth and when it runs into that, there is massive tension. Like tension to such a degree that we're dealing with matters of life and death. So on that note, let's dig in. Psalm 22, Psalm 27. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Now, quick reminder, the Psalms are songs and they are rich, deep, profound Hebrew poetry. So the psalmist here is describing in poetic fashion his desire to see God. Now his desire to see God is specifically in the house of the Lord. And whenever you see the phrase house of the Lord or the courts of the Lord in the Old Testament, this is referring specifically to the temple or tabernacle structure. So uh, in the Old Testament, everyone believed that God was omnipresent, he's everywhere. The psalmist says, even if I make my bed in Sheol or hell, still there you will find me. However, they also knew that God would uniquely manifest the glory of his presence in the temple, and so he's longing to see this, and I hope you feel the the kind of the weightiness of this longing. One thing have I asked, one thing, that I could see you, that I could gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Get one thing, and I ask to see his beauty. Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Now we're only two verses in, but you could kind of see the theme already. The Old Testament has this, the psalmist have a desire to gaze upon the beauty of the, the Lord, to see him in his dwelling place in the tabernacle and the temple. Psalm eighty-four ten, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Again, house of my God is the temple. So he's saying, I'd rather be like, have the lowliest position in the outer courts of the temple structure than dwell in any other house of worship. Psalm 42, one through two. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Now, if you've been a Christian a long time, like most of these triggered in your mind worship songs from different decades. Like, depending on how long you've been a Christian, it's like, I remember we used to sing that song. And it sounded different, though, because there's different translations. But like this one, some of you might remember. So it says, uh, as a deer pants for flowing streams, some of you might remember the song, as the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. And so a lot of these psalms uh, have been worship songs, and so you're remembering these. But one of the, the interesting things about this is again, the desire. Like, one thing I ask. One thing that I would gaze upon your beauty in the temple. And so it's beautiful, but it's also convicting because you're going, wow, this is a beautiful desire and longing to see God. But then you you kind of flip it around at you. It's like, do I have, do I desire God like that? If I had one, if you could grant me one thing, like many of us would pull like a one wish genie in a bottle, like selfish type of thing. It's like you get one thing, one thing I ask. Oh man, I got a lot of things. But if you're honest with yourself, maybe not even in the top five would be to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That's the deep longing and desire that the Psalms are expressing. Here's Psalm 80, one of my favorite of the Psalms. It says, restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. Now focus on uh, the first two lines and the last two lines. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. It's an interesting concept, right? salvation comes when the Lord shines his face upon you. Now, in the middle is where we begin to see this tension because although they're saying, let your face shine and save us, they understand they need to be saved precisely because they have sinned, they have rebelled against God, and there's this judgment, and because of the sinful state, there is this sort of separation between holy, almighty God and their current state. And the solution to that. The solution to that gap is that God would once again let his face shine, and when he does that, salvation will come. Psalm 24, another section that deals with the tension, that builds this tension. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Now quick question, what's the hill of the Lord? The hill of the Lord is Mount Zion, Jerusalem, And it's where the temple is. The temple is at the highest place. And again, the temple is where the presence of God dwells. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Who can go up there and go into the tabernacle or the temple? Answer, he who has a clean heart. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So you go, oh, who can go into the tabernacle? Who can go into the temple and encounter the presence of God? Who can gaze upon the beauty of the Lord in his dwelling place? Oh, simple. Someone who has clean hands and a pure heart. You know, you just gotta be a decent person, good chap, you know, go right in. It's like, no, wait a second. Who's writing this psalm? Dave, David, is lo- David writes psalms that speak of this deep desire to go in and behold the beauty of God. But does David ever get to go? into the holy of holies and behold the glory of the presence of God? It's like, man, no. Who, who does? Like, what happens if you go into that place? If you're familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, you're, if you're just a, you know, you're a normal person, yeah, I got clean hands and a pure heart, go into the dwelling place of God. Do you know what happens? You die. You die. Now this is difficult for modern people to understand, especially when we have a diminutive understanding of the presence and holiness of God. But if you go in your state and see like the unfiltered presence of God, you're dead. You say, well how does that work? Well, um, a, good, a good parallel analogy is fire. You ever like around a campfire and it's like one of the only times in life you could have nothing to do but you're actually quite content to just stare at a fire? It's like, it's mesmerizing. The beauty of it is captivating, right? The beauty of fire is captivating. It's very beautiful. Okay, go touch it. (laughs) Go touch it, go, go for it, so beautiful. There's a purgative nature to fire. It's beautiful to behold but it'll hurt you. God is like pure, radiant fire. You don't walk in the fire and come out okay. And so feel this tension. We long to see the glory of God, to behold his beauty in his temple. I want to go into his dwelling place and see him. Problem, if that happens, you die. Now, there's an interesting conversation between God and Moses dealing with this dynamic. Exodus 33 says this. Moses says to God, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. If Moses sees God, what does God say? You'll die. Now question, Moses, good guy or bad guy? I mean, compared to you, pretty good, dude. You know, like, cause you could say, all oh, right, I got clean hands. You know, I'm a pure heart." Look, Moses is gonna. You're not Moses. You're no Moses. I'm not Moses. You're not. None of us here are Moses level. He's on a different tier, and he dies. It says, "I want to see your glory." The Hebrew word for glory here is kavod, and if you break it down, its kind of literal roots have to do with heaviness or weightiness. God's kavod, his glory, his presence, is heavy. It's heavy. And you say, well, what sense does that make? Um, At first, it's hard to understand, but it makes a lot of sense. Um, There are moments in life where you experience things that feel transcendent or sacred, and there's a weightiness to them. So let's say you're... um, I've never done this but people have explained it like this. You go to vacation in in Europe and you go into these cathedrals that were built several hundred years ago and every like square inch is designed with purpose and when you begin to talk you realize that the entire room has been constructed to amplify voices so that singing is magnified and there's a level of awe in that room. There's a weightiness, it's heavy or when you see a masterful piece of art, you experience it and there's weight to it. That's kavod. Or maybe the best example um, deals with a firstborn child. For those of you who are parents, you're you're gonna remember this um, quite intuitively. So this, this applies to any child that's born, but it really applies to the first child you have. When that baby is born, and you first hold your child, in one sense, that's the lightest that baby's ever going to be. It's only getting bigger and heavier. The bills are only going to go up on feeding that child, okay? (laughs) So in one sense, this is the lightest it's ever going to be. But when you hold your first child for the first time, you've never held anything heavier than that. You've never held anything remotely as heavy as that seven-pound baby. It's the weight of the world is in your hands. And some of you remember. It's like, I remember. Don't move, Isaac. Don't hurt this baby's fragile. Don't move. Find a new way to breathe, Isaac. Don't move. (laughs) Figure it out. Man up. Provide, take care of the child. It's the lightest it's ever been, but it's the heaviest thing you'll ever hold. There's kavod to that. There's weight. Moses says, let me see your kavod, God. Let me see the glory of your presence. God's response, I can't, you'll die. Now the other important thing to note is that Moses asked to see the face of God and God says, I'll cover you with my hands. That's analogous language, that's metaphoric language. Moses is not asking to see the face of God in the human sense. It's not as if infinite, almighty God, there's this face with two eyes and two ears, and you know, a smile, and if you behold it, then you die. To see some, to to talk with someone face to face means to experience that encounter in a personal, intimate way. It's not a phone call, it's not Zoom. Face to face is personal, it's intimate. So so Moses is saying, let me experience you in a personal, intimate way. I want to see the presence. I want to see the glory. And likewise, God is not saying, you know, because I'm God, I have a really big hand and I can hide you under this really big hand. The hand is a hand of protection. Moses says, let me see the kavod. And God says, I can't do that. You'll die. But I'm going to pass by you and as my glory passes by you and you're hid behind a rock under the hand of my protection, I will allow you to see the fading, fleeting backside of my presence. That's kavod, that's heavy. You can't see me and live, so I'm gonna let you experience the fading, fleeting backside of my presence. Now in the Old Testament, This kavod, this presence of God, was said to dwell in the temple. Now, I've been using the word temple and tabernacle interchangeably so far to this point. What you need to know is that the tabernacle is the mobile version of the temple. When God's people are wandering, they don't have a permanent place to stay after the Exodus event. There's this mobile tent and the presence of God goes with his people as they move. Eventually, when Israel settles in the promised land, they build a permanent structure. So there's a tabernacle and a temple. The temple is the permanent structure. The tabernacle is the mobile version. It's the mobile home version of the temple. But they function very similarly. In that tent, God has chosen to uniquely reveal his presence. Again, God is omnipresent, he's everywhere, but he's chosen to uniquely reveal his presence in that tent, in the tabernacle and the temple. Now a quick layout of that tent. You can follow it from the right to the left. You enter from the right and then you go into what we call the holy place and there's items there Um, that have purpose for the rituals that are performed, and that's a very holy place that only certain people can enter. But then, as you travel further into the temple, you come to the Holy of Holies, which has the Ark of the Covenant, which is a perfect cube, and that last portion is the place where God is said to dwell among his people. That's where his presence is. Now, if you were to walk into that holy place and then keep walking, you would run into a giant curtain, a veil, and it's there to make sure you know where you're going because it's not like they just have a line on the ground and if you cross it now, you're in the Holy of Holies. It's if you go to the other side, you are in the Holy of Holies, and guess what? You die. No one can go into the Holy of Holies and live. They all die. Now, some of you who... are well-versed in the Old Testament, you might be saying, actually, Isaac, there's an exception where you can go into the Holy of Holies. Sort of. Sort of. We'll get to that in a moment. In Leviticus chapter 16, there's an outline for something called the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. It's the holiest day of the Jewish calendar. And on that day, the high priest is to do these certain rites and rituals and follow a certain procedure so that there might be atonement between the people and the land with God. And in it, the priest has to make certain sacrifices, he has to bathe in a certain manner, he has to wear certain clothes, so it's like you gotta pay close attention to all the details so that the day of Yom Kippur is performed correctly. You do the day of atonement right. Now, in the setup to the day of atonement, Moses is told by God to warn the current high priest Aaron, and this is what he says. Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place into the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. So it's another developing theme go into the holy of holies and die. Which should sort of remind you of that has biblical resonance with other things, right? Like don't eat of a certain tree or you will surely die. So Aaron, the high priest, can't even go into the Holy of Holies. If he does, you'll die. Now this is the part where I just mentioned where you're going, actually no, there's this one time where he can go into the Holy of Holies. And you are mostly correct, sort of correct. Once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the one high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. But even then, it's more complicated than you might expect. Moses says in Leviticus 16, two, don't go in there or you're gonna die. Then Leviticus 16, verse 12 and 13, he says you can go in there. But listen to the directions. And he, the high priest, shall take a censer, that's a container full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not, our favorite theme, die. Do you follow this? One person, the high priest, on one day, the holiest day, gets to go into the Holy of Holies, but even then, he brings in a container filled with coals and there's incense burning to create smoke so that there is a veil of smoke between him and the kavod of God in order that he might not die. So yes, he's gone in through the curtain, but then you better create this other curtain of smoke lest you die. Now, so you see how this original theme runs into this big biblical truth and the tension arises. There is a deep longing all throughout the scriptures, but it's really really expressed in the Psalms that one would be able to behold the beauty of God, that you would be able to go into his house, into the courts of the Lord and experience the presence of God. It's the cry of Moses. Lord, let me see your face. It's the cry of the psalmist. Let me, if I have one thing, I will ask for one thing that I might behold your beauty. Lord, let your face shine and save us. It was a deep longing and incredible tension. Tension to the degree that it deals with life and death. Now, how do the biblical authors deal with this tension? What do they speak of? How do they resolve it? Now, if you're thinking ahead you're going okay this is a christmas series so we're going to jump straight to the nativity mary joseph baby jesus but you're mistaken Um, we have to start way before there like way before that there's four gospel accounts in the bible matthew mark luke and john and the four gospel accounts are biographies of the life death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, if you're gonna write a biography about someone's life, where do you begin? You typically begin with their birth. And uh, the gospel accounts do that. Two of them begin with the birth of Jesus, one begins with the ministry of Jesus, but it's all kind of the same point. They begin with Jesus coming into the world. Matthew and Luke, they deal with the first birthday of Jesus, if you will, what we celebrate on Christmas. The Gospel of John, however, begins in a different way. John begins his biography not at the birth of Jesus, but at the beginning of all things. So John's biography of Jesus doesn't start with Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, the angels, the announcement. It doesn't start there. It starts at the start of all things. It begins with the beginning of all things. John chapter 1 says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John doesn't begin with the first birthday of Jesus. John begins in eternity before the foundations of the world. And he introduces us to a figure, a character, identified as the Word. Now the question that you have to ask is, who is the Word? And the answer to that is, if you're reading a biography about someone, who do you think this is gonna be talking about at the beginning of the story? John is a bio- the Gospel of John is a biography of Jesus and he begins his story speaking of Jesus and he says that Jesus is this word. And what's fascinating is he said, this word, this Jesus, was in the beginning, and he was with God, and he was God. Which is, if you're honest with yourself, a a confusing way to express an idea, right? Wait a second. Okay, I got it. The word is Jesus, got it. And Jesus was before all things, and before the creation of the world, he was with God, but he is also God. And this is speaking to the mysterious doctrine of the Trinity, that God is one, but this one God is Father, Son, and Spirit. And so John is making a bold claim. He is saying the word, Jesus, he didn't just begin in the first century. In one sense, he had a birthday when he was born to Mary. But in another sense, he is one who has no birthdays. He has a beginning of days, but yet he is without days. He is eternal. He's in the beginning with God, and he is God. It goes on. And the word, the one who is with God and who is God, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So this word, this Jesus, this son of God, has a glory. That's that kavod, in Greek here it's doxa. It's the kavod, he has the weightiness. There's something even deeper going on here. It says that this word, who has glory, became flesh and dwelt among us. There's something hidden in the translation that isn't the translator's fault. They did the best they could. The word for dwelt here is the Greek word skenao, and it means literally like tented or tabernacled. So if you're gonna read this in a literal fashion, it would say, and the word became flesh and tabernacled or tented among us. Now, you could say, well, why didn't they translate it like that? Because we don't have the verb tabernacling in English. And even if we did, no one would even know what that meant. The word is now tabernacling. With us, Okay, what does that even mean? So the translators did their best at trying to, to capture the concept communicated by this Greek word skenao. However, that word skenao, tabernacle intended, is specifically chosen by John because it has deep Old Testament resonance. He's drawing upon a specific image from the Old Testament and a powerful specific image. John is making a, a parallel case here Jesus is now, the, Jesus the word has become flesh and is tabernacling among us. And for the readers of the Old Testament, they would immediately go, well, God tabernacled with us in the Old Testament. But in the Old Testament, God tabernacled, he dwelt among his people in the tent. He was surrounded by the veil and curtains. So if you wanted to understand God's presence in the Old Testament, you'd say, Inside, the holy of holies, surrounded by curtain and veil, is the presence of God. John's claim is this. In the same way that the kavod, the glory of God, was housed in a tent, now that very glory and presence is housed not in curtain and veil, but in human flesh. And the word put on flesh humanity he became a human and he tabernacles with us so now God's presence is not veiled in curtain it's wrapped in humanity it's wrapped in our humanity it's wrapped in human flesh which is a very profound statement like you have to stop there the presence that was once housed in the tabernacle is now housed in human flesh in other words, Jesus is a living, walking, breathing temple and he is the very glory, the kavod of God. Like That's a profound statement. And so now you can tie that into what's occurring on Christmas. So when Mary gives birth to baby Jesus, you have to understand what's taking place. When, when little baby Jesus comes out and she holds him for the first time, and she feels the kavod and that weight. She is not just merely looking at a child. When Mary looks down and holds her firstborn son, she beholds the very face of God. She beholds the glory of God himself. The kavod wrapped in humanity, wrapped in human flesh. And when Joseph looks down at that child, whom he will have to provide for. He is looking at the one in whom all things have been provided for. The creator of all things in human flesh, in humanity. Psalm 83, the heart cry of the psalmist, restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. This is how God has chosen to let his face shine upon the world. In him was life and he was the light of all humanity. Let your face shine so that we may be saved. On the announcement that the angel made, what does he say you shall name the child? You shall name him Jesus. The Hebrew for that is Yeshua. Yeshua means Yahweh is salvation or Yahweh saves. And then the angel goes on and says, why do you name him Yeshua? because he will save his people from their sins. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. In Jesus, Yeshua, you behold the face of God. You are seeing God shine upon his people and bridge the gap between his holy perfection and their sinful state. And so, merry man, you thought... You were holding the weight of the world. (laughs) She is holding the maker of all things in whom salvation of the nations will come from. In that small baby, there is someone bigger than all of creation. This idea is captured in the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia series. So many people um, have read um, part of the Narnia series, usually what happens is you read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and then you stop, and there's like seven more, there's seven books total. Okay. Um, I won't spend too long on this, but make sure to read all the Chronicles of Narnia <laughs> and do it like every two to three years. Trust me. Trust me. Um, it's not just a children's book. The, the last time I read the last book, I, I weeped. It, it was, I'm just crying. It's that good. Okay. So in that last book, there's an apocalyptic scene where like, everyone appears as if they're going to die. The main characters go into a small stable-like room where they think they will certainly die. But as they walk into this small stable-like room, there's an opening and there's blue sky and it's like there's a whole nother world inside the small stable. And in that moment, one of the characters from our world, Earth, Who's now thinking she's going to die in Narnia? She enters this small stable. She says this In our world, too, a stable once had something inside that was bigger than our whole world. In that room with Mary and Joseph, there was one who was bigger than the room, the town, the city, the planet, all of creation the infinite almighty God was in that small room. But you could even take it a layer deeper than that. Because in the womb of the young woman Mary, there was someone who was much bigger than a womb and a room. There was one who was bigger than all things, the creator of heaven and earth and he came as a small, frail, and fragile human in order that he, once again, might bridge the gap between holy, almighty God and our fallen humanity. The section in John ends this way. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And listen to this. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. That's kind of confusing like John 1.1, but let's follow this. No one has ever seen God. People try to do that in the Old Testament, you die. However, the only God, who is the only God? This is the word who was with God and who is also God. He has been at the Father's side, he has made him known. God the Son has made the fullness of who God is manifest and known to rebellious world. Now how are we to live in light of that incredible truth? The author of Hebrews tells us, he says this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now you can just read this really quick and go, okay, cool. You know, we get to have confidence as we approach Jesus. Like, no, like, we gotta slow down. You now have confidence. If you have put faith in Jesus, you now have confidence. Confidence to do what? To enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Who got to go in that place? One guy, the high priest, on one day, the most holy day of the year, to make atonement for all people. And even when he went in, You know what he better make sure he was doing? Burning some coals so that there's still a veil between him and the presence. But now, for those in Christ, you with confidence and boldness go into the holy places because the blood of Jesus. Verse 20, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, but not the curtain you're thinking of, Through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. At the crucifixion of Jesus in the temple, the curtain is torn. But the reason why the curtain is torn is because the body of Jesus was broken as the last and final ultimate sacrifice to reconcile sinful men and holy, almighty God. And because of that, for you in Christ, you can go with boldness. That's remarkable. One guy, once a year, Hiding, now approach him with confidence. Go into the presence of the living God. I quoted Rich Mullins last week and here's another quote from a Christian musician. He wrote a song and he said, we didn't know what love was till he came and he gave love a face and he gave love a name. If you wanna know what God is like, you read Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. What is God like? Look at the face of Jesus. How did Jesus live? How did he act? How did he behave? How did he treat others? How did he go about encountering people? If you want to know what God is like, ask what is Jesus like? That, how, that is how God is shining his face upon a broken world and revealing himself. You look to Jesus. This is why reading the scripture is so important and reading the gospels are so important. What is, what is God like? Just read, read how Jesus acts. That's what God is like. Now, there's one more layer to this. Uh, some of you might be going, this is great, Mary is beholding the face of God. Um, that's how God is saving the world. I understand all that. But, you know, Jesus was crucified and then he resurrects and then he ascends. So, I can't see the face of Jesus anymore. So how do I experience his presence? Well, this is how the story goes. The Father sent the Son, and in the Son we behold the face of God. And the Son is crucified, resurrected, but before he ascends back into heaven, he says, I will not leave you alone. I'm not gonna leave you alone. And just as the Father sent the Son, so the Son sends his Spirit. And he says, in that, God, the Spirit, will never leave or forsake us. For those in Christ, you, if you are in Christ, you will never spend a day alone. Even if you don't feel it, even if your emotions tell you otherwise, if you are in Christ, you will never spend a day without God. He has put his spirit inside of you. He is closer to you than the air in your lungs. So the first Christians said it like this. Your body is now a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now you could just read that and go, okay, the body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. But remember the story. One guy, high priest, once a year, and even then, smoke. Christ has given us his spirit and it's inside of you. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now in the scriptures that's described in two ways, in an individual level and a corporate level. So in scripture it talks about how you as an individual are a temple of the Holy Spirit, but it also says the the, the church as a whole, the corporate gathering of believers, that's also a temple of the Holy Spirit. So both are true. Which means right now in this place, there is the presence of God. Even if you don't feel it, maybe you had a good day or a bad day, doesn't matter. He made promises and he's faithful. God's presence is with us and with you and he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. Your body is a temple. That's heavy. That's kavod heavy. Do you feel the weight of that? Remember the one guy once a year? Now it's just in you? All of a sudden it's sort of like, better sit up straight, you know what I mean? Now why is this so important, especially in Christmas time, but any time? The world, as you know, is a very broken place, filled with hurt, pain and human suffering. There is loss, there is grief, there is evil, there is wickedness, there is corruption. And God has a method by which he brings his healing presence to people. In the Old Testament, you went to the temple. But now you all are temples of the Holy Spirit you bring with you, wherever you go, the presence of Almighty God. If you are in Christ, because of his death and resurrection, his blood shed on your behalf, you bring with you the presence of God. So you almost wanna give yourself like a pep talk, like why better start acting like it? You know what I mean? Because you could look at the world and oh, this is so bad, there's so much stuff. Yeah, and there's a suffering person who's experienced immense loss. You go there and you bring the spirit of God with you and you minister and it's not just you because you know you tell yourself, oh, I don't really know what I'm doing. I don't. It doesn't, it, in a sense that matters, but in another sense it doesn't matter. It's not up to you. It's you being faithful to do what God has called you to do and then you let his spirit work you go into darkness, you go into human suffering, you go into grief and loss, and you go in there knowing I'm bringing with me the healing presence of God. So God, please use me, please use me. And as you look around at the world, maybe every morning you should wake up and say, thank you God, I am so grateful for all you've done for me, and two, please use me today. I know you go with me, I know I stumble along and fail and falter, but use me. I know you go with me. And so what the world needs right now is for Christians to remember (laughs) that God goes with them and to act like it and to believe that God is still healing the world. He's still healing the nations and he brings grace and forgiveness in his personal presence. Let's stand as we take communion. So in the Old Testament, in order to go into the holy place, there would be sacrifices, and sacrifices seemingly unending. Goats and bulls and, and blood. And those were all signs and, and shadows and symbols and foretastes pointing to the once and for all sacrifice. The temple had a veil. The veil in the temple was torn precisely because the body of the Son of God was broken. We now enter with confidence, not by our own works or by the works of our own hands, but by the works and hands of another. Christ's life, his death, his resurrection. We go with confidence because we remember on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he said, this is my body, it's given to you. So let's take and remember. Likewise, Jesus takes the cup, the blood of the new covenant. The blood of goats and bulls, they could, they could never accomplish the task at hand. They were always insufficient. It would be the shed blood of God himself. And in that human body, there was one bigger than the entirety of the cosmos. Someone far bigger than we could ever imagine and that infinite, holy, almighty God would incarnate, he would tabernacle in humanity in order that he might save humanity. So as you shed your blood, Lord, and were faithful to us and faithful to the very end, we now pledge our faithfulness to you. And Father, as we close in worship, we wanna be a thankful people, we wanna be a grateful people, But I also ask, too, that we would be a people who wake up saying, use me, Lord. The world is broken and fallen, use me. Not because I'm special or unique or gifted, but because you go with me. So now may we properly honor your son, Jesus, Father, for he is worthy of all praise, glory, and honor. We thank you today. We offer up these prayers to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.